Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast? It's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. In the second part of our dialogue with the award-winning educator Shaquille Chowdhury, he dives deeper into diversity issues and explains how our biases are both hardwired and softwired into us, how as social creatures we tend to normalize and rationalize whatever society we're part of, including the injustices, and how we naturally empathize with people like us and fear people unlike us. But he also points out how we can train ourselves to recognize our biases and our cultural conditioning and to free ourselves from their straitjacket. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. What gets lost in society is that we think that whoever's made it to the top, who's got a job, who's risen in society, that they're the ones that work the hardest. And what we're just trying to say is, well, no. Well, that, that's the Ayn Rand Republican myth, you know, that everybody, you know, doesn't matter if you were born on third base, you know, it's because you work so hard and you're, you know, it should be honored and, and blessed and all that stuff. And, and and that's true. And I think a lot of what we're talking about, too, that we have to add in is classism. Yes. Okay. So if you're, I have a place in a nice neighborhood and there's been white flight out of this, this neighborhood fear. It's a really violent, scary place. So the the black people move out of it too and go to the other neighborhood as soon as they're economically available because they want their kids to walk down safe streets. But uh, here in the South, you also, you have people that are really come from the kind of the deep hillbilly, you know, not with a lot of education. And so they have these very strong, they speak this whole other English dialect. Well, I think they're judged by that too, when it comes to getting job beyond just labor. Okay. Yeah. And the same thing with, with black people, if they speak like, you know, like an Obama or their Harvard grad or something like that, and like, oh, okay, wow. But if they speak like they just come from the hood or something and they can't, there's, there's all these biases that are not strictly racial, but they're very classist at the same time. You know, it kind of comes together. Yeah, it's, you're right. It's class and race that come together. Absolutely. And, and we see that. And it's and it's just really important that we're able to be, you know, more sophisticated in our analysis. Sometimes, you know, I, I've been asked questions during one interview where I said, "Well, what about the white coal miners? What do you say to them when they're looking over at Silicon Valley and seeing a brown tech person who's who's making a lot of money, that kind of thing?" And and you know, to my my reaction to that is, well, we've got to be able to be more complicated because all coal miners are not white, right? So let's let's compare the white coal miners with the coal miners of color. Let's also take a look at Silicon Valley. And even though we're at this point, 
putting a brown or East Asian body into that context, the reality of Silicon Valley is that those tech jobs are still predominantly white, right? And so there's ways in which our own stereotypes about information around class and race become really stuck and static as opposed to dynamic and going, right, we should absolutely care about what's happening to white coal miners. And we should also in that same conversation say, right, and what about the black coal miners in that area? How are they also faring compared to their white counterparts? And is, are they the same? Is it different? And, and by bringing that inquiry in, it's not shutting down the conversation, it's making it more complex, right? Yeah, and that's one of the things I've really appreciated about your book, Deep Diversity, Sha- Shaquille, is that there you take multiple perspectives and nuance and do bring in these many variables that affect equality and diversity in our in our culture. One of them which really struck me, and it, it's something that it wasn't new, but it, it it hit again, was that effectively we are that there is an effectively a hip a culture wide hypnosis, and that we're all members of the biggest cult of all culture, and that that hypnosis has both universal aspects but also very specific aspects around certain people. You bring in the point of the the concept of cultural hegemony from the from the Marxist Antonio Gramsci, I think it is, and that hegemony, cultural hegemony operates is the dominant groups exert dominance by many means, but partly by a culture-wide hypnosis. And one example which really struck me was a prayer, which I think I probably sang as a kid from the church, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high or lowly, and ordered their estate. I mean, that was getting imprinted in, in in Sunday school. And that's just one striking example of the ways in which the legitimacy of the status quo is presented as normal, natural, inevitable. And we're hypnotized. And that's the way we were for thousands of years of our history. If you were born into the aristocracy, there you were. If not, you were born to serve. And it was just, it was the water we swam in for ages. So the fact that we can have this conversation, maybe we're making a little progress. Well, we're definitely making progress. I mean, I, 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 you know, even though we're at a time where the political polarization is extreme and we are at a, no doubt, very grave moment, you know, it's in moments like this where I have to cast myself back in order to make sense of where we are right now. I, often have to cast myself back in, you know, in the time frame of history and go, okay, over 2000 years, where are we now as a species, right? Where are we as people? Where have we made progress? And, you know, clearly we've made progress in that time, meaning from anti-slavery movements, women's suffrage and the right to vote, human rights and civil rights, same-sex marriage. Like this is, we're all moving in that trend. That doesn't mean that we're there <laughs> or, or that everyone's happy about those changes, right? As people in the politics, but there is pretty mammoth change. Like I think about for any of us that were, were alive and verbal anytime before the mid nineties, we will recognize how extremely homophobic our language was. 
It was so homophobic. Words that were just, that are completely not acceptable today were everywhere. I mean, to a point where I was a young teacher, the kind of things that I would hear in a in the staff lunchroom that, you know, teachers would be fired for today. Yeah. Those are the kind of things that we just said because we didn't know any better. So we can make change and we have made change. It's just that it's slow. And I also think too that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a theory out there called system justification theory. And, and even just by the very name of it, I like it because, because what it says is, you know, almost regardless of where, where we are born into the process, we justify the system, whether we're on the bottom, whether we're on the top. Now there's always some of us that want to break out of the system. And that's just our temperament, our circumstances. There's always a small group of people that know something's wrong or want to push up against it. But for the most part, we justify wherever we are. And that's where like, whether you're on the top, where you're on the bottom, we're in the middle, we're justifying the system because we're a herd creature, right? Like we're mammals. We do what our people do often unquestioningly. And so, you know, changing the norms of society, that's the whole battle. That's the whole thing around whether we move more towards inclusion or exclusion. And so I, I would just say that we, we justify the system. We recreate the system unless we're taught to see that the system somehow isn't serving us, isn't serving our people, isn't serving the broader group. And that requires a, a, almost always there's a small group of people. Most people, most of us are, you know, <laughs> the number of times that I've seen this within myself and, and I feel like I hear the sentiment sort of expressed. It's like when we look back in history, everybody talks as though they would be on the right side of history, that they would be the people who are, that we would be the people who are going to be hiding Jewish people in our basements during the Nazi regime, that we would be marching with Dr. King and all the people in the civil rights movement. No. That is just not the case. Our sense of like, like this false belief in what we would do versus what we will actually do are two very different things. And this, you know, when we look back in history, it's, history is easy because everyone thinks that they know what they would be on the side of justice. But I feel, and I've experienced that myself too, but I'm like, Really? It's this complicated. There's always a small group of people who are on the right side of justice. They usually drag the rest of society along eventually to the right side, you know? And so that's the tendency that I see that the change happens, but it's often with a small group of people and that's where it starts. And they kind of like yank us along until it becomes a culture change. And that's what we're trying to take the culture change. Shaquille, one of the things that as far as my growth of my education was really helpful. At a certain point, I joined the United States Army. Okay. Talk about a leveler. You know, you go in there, they cut all your hair off. They put, you know, called pickle suits, these ill-fitting uniforms, ball-headed black guys, ball-headed Mexicans, ball-headed everybody. And they just scream at you, black drill sergeants, white drill sergeants, and they take you through all this stuff. And that's where I, I really, and, and I think in, in some ways, the, the U.S. military has been one of the most integrated, progressive organizations in our, in our country. And 
I, I, I learned to respect and work with, and they were black jerks, but you know, whatever they're human beings, but I had officers and NCOs and soldiers that I super respected and developed, you know, working with them. And I think, you know, so that we don't just all stay in our little white ghettos or our black ghettos or this ghettos and that ghettos or something like mandatory service. They just stick everybody through and it doesn't matter who your daddy is, you know, you got to go is, is a way to help us face to face and realize the common humanity. And it, it was very powerful for me to see that. And uh, we did away with that, you know, and so now we're kind of lower middle class people join the military to get a foot up on life and which is a good way to go if you can. So that seemed to help. So how do we, how do we get people that are just tribal by their nature, more comfortable with your own type to actually start working and hanging out and seeing beyond the, the, you know, the, the shallow exterior differences. Right. There, there's so much that you've said in there, John. One is I think that, that, you know, an experience where people have to intensely come together for shared purpose is, is deeply meaningful. I think that some elements of that make sense. I've heard other folks that have joined the military say those kind of things. At the same time, we also know that that misogyny, homophobia, and racism also are deeply entrenched in places like the military, places like policing, very male-dominated. So I think that you know there may be elements of what you're seeing. I think I think you're pulling one part of the of the positive part, but it, it, I think it's within a whole. It's a little bit more challenging. Although I think that there's there is something to be learned in terms of how military units work with power and and collaborate in particular ways that I think is really important. I think though overall, you know, how do you bring people together? Well, some of it is contact, right? Like I think what you're talking about is you just were in a situation where there was contact, right? And you got to and you said it was the great leveler. Well, contact can do that. Contact activates empathy. But there's lots of ways we can make contact with each other. But it usually requires more intention, you know, as for example, you know, whether it's the history of redlining, the impact of something that, you know, happened 50 to 100 years ago still plays out today in terms of segregated neighborhoods, right? So there's realities in which you've got predominantly white neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. And so structurally, it's hard to connect with people unless you're doing it in the workplace, which is, I think, a, a site where you can connect. Or be really intentional about how about how we're going to work across these differences. Sometimes sports bring young people together in ways that they wouldn't be otherwise. One hundred percent. Sports is another place we can do that. Arts, you know, creative outlets for sure. And I think though that that you know, going back to what I was saying at the beginning, the more that we can start treating this as a literacy project, the more we're actually able to see the problems more clearly and, and identify where things are working and where things are not. Part of the challenge right now is that people can't see the very problems that other people are experiencing. Mm. Right. So, you know, recently I was reading a story where a very accomplished woman of color finally made partnership in a, in their global firm. She was excitingly sharing this with one of her mentors who 
um, with dear friends who happened to be a white and man who also had made partnership in his in his own firm. And 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 the their relationship, which had been really close, hit a really difficult place because in that conversation, the white friend said, Well, you know, you you've got it made because you're a woman of color, but that means that everything's going to be easy for you right? Because you're a partner, but they're looking for women, especially women of color. So you got it made, but me, I'm a white man. I'm going to have to work hard all the way through because I have to compete against other white white men. And, and to me, that was a classic example of where somebody completely cannot see the patterns that are, that they're living under and perpetuating. They can't see the lived experiences that women are having to contort themselves into a male dominated space that women of color are having to, you know, squish themselves even further into a space that is for white people and white men. And so because they can't see the patterns, suddenly they have this false sense of victimhood, like none of the data or lived experiences really would validate that man's experiences or perception of what he's going to be facing. But that's because I would say he's not literate to the patterns around racism and sexism. If he was, he would never have made that comment. And so what I want to say is that what's part of the solution, I mean, there's not one solution. There's many, many solutions. Everyone's got to show up. You know, there's only about a there's 8 billion of us. And there's probably about 10 billion jobs that we have to do to make this work. And everyone's voice is needed and everyone's expertise is needed and everyone's field is needed. So there's not one solution, but one of the things that I offer is I say, if we can turn this into a literacy project, we can see the behavioral patterns. We're much more likely to build the relationships with each other, right? So I can, I can have a conversation with you two and say, Hey, so you know, as older white men, what's your experience right now? Or what was your experience before? And how's it different? And I can show up with empathy for you. And if you can see the patterns around race, then you're probably more likely to be able to show up with empathy around certain patterns that I may have experienced. But if we can't see each other clearly, if we can't see the patterns that might be at play, our ability to build an authentic relationship with each other gets diminished. Right. So just like that man who was up until that point, a really close friend of that woman of color, his inability to see the pattern and suddenly falsely victimize himself, jeopardize their relationship. Right. And so in that in that moment, it's because he couldn't see the pattern, the pattern she has to live with every single day. And that's how hidden the patterns are if we don't experience them. So if we don't experience them, we have to learn them, right? We have to learn what those are because, and that's where our biases most often will show up is the identities we don't possess. And Shaquille, how did you, would you put two things together? One of the things I really appreciate about your book, Deep Diversity, is that you, you do bring multiple perspectives and you do bring nuance. So in the case now of, say, the white guy who, thought the woman of color would have it easier. And what you're pointing to is, well, that misses a, a whole 
host of systemic biases and unconscious biases that such people have to deal with. And there is also the reality that at this stage, there is in some way a remedial preference being given to, say, minorities and women, women of color. I mean, you know, in the university, the number of grant applications and fellowships, et cetera, that come across my my desk, you know, a lot of them, an awful lot of them these days, have, you know, women and minorities encouraged to apply. You know, there's, there's never a thing old white guys are encouraged to apply. So how do we hold both simultaneously? Right. That feels more challenging. It is. So what, well, first of all, I would say go back to the data, right? And go back to verifiable phenomena. So for example, the example of the thing that I talked about before, where a manager not knowing the pattern around women being interrupted at meetings. Okay. In a training I, I did not too long ago, one of the white male leaders said to me in a follow-up session, Hey, Shaquille, you know, you told me, you told us that thing about women being interrupted at meetings. And I just thought to myself, when you're telling me that there's no chance that happens in our space. There's no chance that happens in our space because you know what? We're like really cooperative. We're really a thoughtful organization. There's no way that happens here. Right. He said, but you challenge us to go look for it. And so I did. And then I was shocked at how frequently I saw it everywhere. Now, this is the part that I was talking about before about being it, 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 something being not agnostic. It's a verifiable phenomenon. You can go and verify it, right? Go look for it. Now, there's also a perception around women of color and people of color getting all these preferences and things like that. When you look at the data, as much as there are these notices that say that, you know, if you're minoritized, you're encouraged to apply, and there isn't that same invitation for white people to apply, regardless, the data is showing us that, that this plays out still with all these preferences towards white people and white men, that, that what we think is happening and what is actually happening on the ground inside organizations is two totally different things. The data does not validate the fear that is being expressed. That's what I see all the time. And like, for example, I, I worked in the context of, I work in the context of policing with police officers. Since I was in early university, I heard from a, a, a close high school friend of mine, he was like, yeah, you know, I want to go to, to police college, but there's no way I'm going to get in because, you know, basically right now it's all, all women and, and people of color. And I was like, that's awful. I can't believe that's the case. This was in 1988. <laughs> that belief has been around. And I live in Toronto, which has the most diverse police force in Canada. And this was conversation with a high school friend of mine when we were uh, we just graduated from high school. And this is the late 80s. And we were just outside of Toronto. And today in Toronto, we still have about a quarter of the entire force 
consists of women and people of color. But the belief that that has been a closed door for white men has been around for decades. There's no data to back it up. Well, Shaquille, and then there's also political voices that are exacerbating that and wanting people to believe that. So they'll be more fearful. They'll vote the right way. They'll it's just this constant stream. I mean, if you sit there and watch Fox News for eight hours a day, and I've seen people have done that, you go absolutely nuts based on just falsehoods. And what do you do with that? Well, the 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 misinformation is one part that I don't entirely know how to deal with. But in absence of misinformation, we didn't have Fox News in 1988. It was still happening in 1988. Mm-hmm. And I say that because our ability to believe the worst when we are from the dominant group as a man, to believe that women are taking over as a, as a white person, to believe that people of color are taking over, that's kind of like a fear-based thing that is easy to believe because that's part of how privilege functions. Right. If 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 there's a company of 100 people and one or two women are hired, they're a curiosity. That's interesting. But now there's five women, there's 10 women, 15 women. Women are taken over. But there's only 15 out of 85. The comparison is when we had none. Right. And so it's our what was our comparison point that makes us suddenly feel anxious because we're not used to seeing them, quote unquote, in the space. And as soon as there's more than a handful, it starts feeling like a threat. Yeah, well, that's it. Change is threatening to somebody. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. But we've got to know that that's within us. That's not just about Fox News. That's not about bad people. That's about our reaction, because we are more likely to believe the worst about minority groups, especially if we feel like there's something at stake, right? Our stake. So that is a biological predisposition. We have empathy response for people most like us, and there's a threat response for people we perceive to be different than us, especially minority group members. That's biology at play as well as sociology, right? So I just want to put that out that it's, yes, Fox News and, and the misinformation and now AI, God, I don't know what we're going to do with all that stuff. But even before all of that, even before all of that, that's already in place. So you're pointing to the fact that there are both unconscious and conscious and individual and systemic factors which are working to maintain the status quo. It sounds like this system preservation, what did you call it, system justification theory that we tend to both, and more than system justification, it's not only we justify the system, but we protect the system. And one thing that hasn't been, isn't, I didn't see mentioned in your book, is that you talk uh, talk about the power of, of education and minorities stepping outside the system, critiquing the system. But that actually, what the developmental research shows is that requires a lot. It requires people to move, develop them and mature from the pre-conventional where they don't, don't even aren't socialized into the conventional 
But then to actually mature to a post-conventional perspective, that's a maturation process. It's not simply a change of attitude. And that's- Where diversity is welcome at a certain point in development. It's like, like I, I try to explain this to students. It's like you go to uh, San Francisco, and if you're at this certain conventional or traditional, you go, oh, my God, look at these Chinese and Black people and Mexicans. It's like the Roman Empire, everything falling. And you go there, and if you're a postmodern or green, you go, what diversity, what a rich city. I love this place. You know, so you're seeing the same thing. There's completely different reactions depending at where they are in their growth process. So I wasn't clear about what the what the question was in that. Was there something you wanted to respond? I have a I have a question. Is is you've been on the front lines of this for a long time, struggling with this. Have you seen any improvement? Do you feel hope or are things getting better? Is your work becoming more effective? I think that I'm definitely someone that sees more hope. Uh, I I think that there's conversations, the conversations that I'm having with my kids. The fact that my kids will correct me when I misgender one of their friends, right? Like that, that to me, they're like, they're just way more comfortable because they don't have the habits set in. My habits are still being updated around pronouns, for example, my kids are like, what's a big deal, right? Like, why, why are you getting this wrong? Right? So, so that, so, and as I said before, like homophobic language, where we are today, homophobia has not gone away, but what we are doing in society is different. Same-sex marriage, that was not a conversation in 1990 to the same way or degree, right? It wasn't even legal in most places. So we've got all these kinds of issues that are, that are positive. I'll tell you a story about hope that I, that I think, and again, because I work in organizations, I'll tell you a story about hope, which is about what organizations can aspire to when they do, when I, because I started talking about the 360 hour journey. If you, if, if leaders start putting in and seeing the patterns and they're developed their comfort levels and develop that basic level of 360 hours, people can move from a reactive form of leadership to a proactive form of leadership. So, for example, right around the George Floyd protests in 2020, all the things that we saw happening, organizations panicked. Organizations had done nothing, suddenly started wanting to do something. They didn't know what to do, but they were doing, you know, we got calls for like ridiculous things like, we've never done anything, but can you come and host a a town hall for 800 people? And we're like, no, (laughs) because you will not be able to hear, hold any of the feedback. You'll put the very people who are giving you feedback at risk because you're not ready for that kind of stuff. So a lot of organizations floundered, continue to flounder, and they panicked and they got criticized heavily. So there's one of our clients, we started working with them. I started working with them in 2016. And they're a financial institute in uh, the Midwest. They they did something really simple. Like they, they, they brought me in and they basically were like, okay, what should we do? And uh, let's start by training your executive team. And they, the executive team went, okay, that's, this was really good training. We should take this down to the next level. So then we worked with the next level. And they're like, what do we do next? And, and we're like, well, let's work with all your middle managers. And so went through this process of just like them developing the 360 hours. And it was just working by going one step at a time. They had no fancy plan, nothing like that. But as they developed their comfort levels with the patterns, getting comfortable with the material so it wasn't quite so scary, they were then, they were also simultaneously able to develop some courage. 
So they looked at their data and they saw that there was a 20 point gap between their employee engagement data between their white employees and black employees. And they had really high employee engagement period, right? But they were like, what do we do with this? And that was, that's a courageous thing to do to look at your data and go, what, what's going on here? Yeah. What do we do? And, and so what do we do? And I was like, well, let's go talk to your, to talk to the employees who identify as black and see what their experiences are. Cause I can't, I have some sense, but like, let's go talk to them specifically. So we did some focus groups and wrote a report. And again, to this organization's credit, because of the time they put in, they looked at the report and they didn't flinch. And they started implementing almost every single recommendation. That included hiring particular people in certain kinds of positions, someone to support diversity inclusion and so on. So they had been working for almost a year and a half by the time the George Floyd murder happened. So even though that moment hit most organizations like a tsunami, this organization had already been working. So it it wasn't a big thing. They did three things at that moment that demonstrated to me responsive leadership rather than reactive leadership. One, they had already done the pre-work so that when that moment happened, they had the right people in place. They were the only organization I know that thought it was the right step to get trauma supports for their Black employees because they knew how important that was. No other organization I knew that did that. Two, they realized that the work they were doing inside their organization was linked to the struggles around racial equity outside the organization. And they created like a $1.5 million racial equity fund that supported housing and other initiatives to support communities of color. And thirdly, they did something really micro that demonstrated their journey of 360 hours. And they, and they did this. During that time, one of their billboards on the side of the road got vandalized. And it got vandalized with pro-Black Lives Matter, pro-George Floyd kinds of graffiti. Now, what's a typical corporate response when one of your roadside signs gets vandalized? Well, you take it down. Instead of taking it down, they paused. And they said, shouldn't we talk about this? And they, and the executive had a conversation. Just the pause was important. They had a conversation instead of knee-jerk reacted. They paused and said, but we agree with this message. So why would we take it down? So instead of taking it down, they, they took the roadside billboard and moved it to the busiest intersection in the city. And to me, those three examples are a maturing of leadership responsiveness to these issues because they're starting to understand the patterns. They're not done. They're not perfect by any means, but in a moment of crisis is when you get tested. And they were the only organization that I know that did those things that made, and I wasn't even working with them directly at that time. I was just like, wow, they're moving on their own doing these things. This is maturity. This is a maturity around racial justice and equity that, that, makes me feel good about the literacy they've built internally. And this is a predominantly white organization, you know, in a purple state, right? Which means they've got all different kinds of 
political affiliations inside the same organization, inside the same leadership team. And yet this is what they're doing because they're able to see the patterns. They haven't absorbed a giant anti-racism ideology. They've moved on verifiable phenomena. They've looked at patterns. They've helped their team see the patterns. They've developed a culture in which addressing those patterns is the right thing to do. But that's been a journey of many years and, and more towards a 360-hour journey with some leaders being above that number and some people being below that number, but nonetheless moving in that direction so that you know, they can support equity in, a, in meaningful ways as opposed to just like window dressing. And just one last thing I wanted to say that you was, I thought, moved me as as individuals, we can ask questions and listen. You know, we can ask a gay person. OK, you know, I mean, you have to get some form of trust going before you can just ask these questions. I realize that. But ask black people what it's like. Ask women what it's been like for them and just listen. And I think that would do a great deal to it to improve our understanding and our empathy if we just listen more and ask the right question. So I like, I like where you're going with that, John. The only tweak I would make to that is that I think that there's enough information out there that I, as a man, can do my pre-work to understand what's already happening in the context for women. Yeah. Right? As, as a person who's not Black, doing my pre-work to understand the specific ways in which anti-black racism plays out that doesn't affect me or or even directly many members of my community right so i do the pre-work and i build the relationships with people and it's through the relationships that we find the right opportunities to ask the right questions right you have to have that relationship for sure you have to have the relationship and it's got to feel like there's there's something reciprocal rather than extractive i'm going to use you to learn about something that I can actually learn on my own and then show up in relationship with you to, to be supportive when difficult shit happens. Hey, do you want to talk about that? You know, because like there, there are people in my life that I was like, you know, when the George Floyd moment would happen, I was like, holy shit. That is, that is just appalling. How are you doing? Is there anything that I can do for you right now? I don't know if this is having an impact on you. I don't want to assume one way or the other, but I just want to check in because like this is turning me inside out, but I don't know how, what kind of effect it's having on you. I'm in a relationship where I'm not extracting the experience, but I'm respectfully being there as an ally, as a co-conspirator, as a support, or someone's like, that's just not affecting me. It's like, okay, that's cool. That's also fine too. You might not be connected to that, but recognizing that there's a whole range of possibilities allows me to be in a more authentic relationship because I know what the needs of John are, which is different than the needs of Roger, right? And which is different than the needs of Jamal, which is different than the needs of Lakeisha, right? So we, we've got the, so it's in our relationship that I know I've already invested in the relationship in order to be there when things get challenging rather than be taking someone something from someone in a moment where they're already potentially reduced because of what's happening. Shaquille, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, is there anything else you would like to add before we? Right. That you, that we didn't ask or that, you know, you missed or something to leave us with. 
I think as we're thinking about racial justice and equity, diversity and inclusion, what is it for? To me, my North Star comes from the concepts of Dr. King around beloved community, right? Are we closer to, are the steps that I'm taking moving us closer to beloved community or is it moving me further away? Uh, whether I'm a person of color, whether I am a white person, whether people identify as straight or heterosexual or gender diverse, whatever it might be, what are we doing to, to create that? And I think sometimes we get lost. Sometimes the language of justice can make us forget what we're fighting for. And so for me, that's what I'm trying to do is whenever I get lost, I, I have to ask myself, is this supporting the creation of beloved community? And that's why the work around compassion is so important in this work that I see both of you as older white men, but I see you as people. I see you for your privilege. I see you for your marginalization. I see me in the same ways so that we can actually be an authentic relationship so that we can also have not just nice conversations, but brave conversations. Mm -hmm we can step into those moments where it's hard and disagree and and yet show up with our pattern awareness so that the conversations we're having are smart conversations that there are thoughtful conversations and hurtful conversations and and so i think the pattern recognition piece and the literacy piece is so important to build the relationship across these differences and and really, like my hope would be that we end up creating a world in which we truly don't see the color of our skin or our identities, but that's not where we are. And because we're not there, we have to, but actually it's through our relationships that we can then evolve past identities and the confines of identity. So again, so much of this work is paradoxical. It's like race isn't a real concept, but we have to treat it like a real concept because of the impact. It's not, it's not scientifically sound, but it's socially impactful. So we've got to talk about it equally in our work. You know, can we hold and identify our differences and simultaneously hold our humanity and see all the ways that we're similar, but sometimes we get polarized and we move from some people just really needing everything to be about our common humanity, which suffocates our differences and other people needing to only focus on our differences, which suffocates the things that brings us together. Mm. But can we hold tension simultaneously? And I think in holding the tension simultaneously gives us the space to transform and gets us closer to achieving the goals of beloved community. Beautiful. And again, there's so much in what you, what you said, but in closing, I do want to point out the beauty of the both-and approach in so much of your thinking and your writing, Shaquille, and the what you've just given us, which is a positive vision of some something to move towards an ideal, a North Star that calls us. And that's 
such an important additive to the more common stance of this is what we're fighting against, which tends to bring up the adversary, the us, them, the anger, the righteousness. And, you know, there's a place for that fighting against, but to be complemented by the by the beauty of the call to that which we're moving towards feels like a wonderful balance and integration. And, and one of the things I, that's one of the things, or many things I love, love about your book, Deep Diversity, a compassionate scientific approach to achieving racial justice, but you bring so many facets together into a beautiful whole. And thank you so much for your work. It's a real gift to so many of us. And I personally feel very touched by your writing and this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shaquille. You're welcome, Roger. You're welcome, Jenna. Great to be here today. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.